0: Welcome, listeners, to a brand new bonus episode of Oh My Word podcast. And today we have a really special crew because we have with us author, editor, educator, Meeg Pintas. Okay, there's so much to say, but you just have to listen to hear all the stuff about her. So, Meeg, welcome to our podcast.
1: Thank you. It's great to be here.
0: I'm so excited to speak with you. Okay, so one of your biggest things is that you're writing nonfiction for kids. So, how do you get into that? Because I think a lot of people, you're thinking kids' writing, it's either Picture books or like educational materials for like a classroom. So how'd you get into like nonfiction writing for kids? How'd that happen?
1: Basically, I've been writing nonfiction in many different arenas since, oh gosh, almost 30 years now from journalism to academia. I, I was an editor and an educational publisher for a while. And about six years ago, I just realized that nonfiction picture books brought together everything that I loved about writing and how I was working as an educator. And I just dove into nonfiction picture books and never looked back. <laughs> I wow. haven't looked back since. <laughs>
0: wow. So going back to 30 years, did you always set out with an intention of one day becoming a writer or your focus was on being an editor? Or what was your original focus?
1: It was all of them. It's funny, looking back, you can trace the strings, but it was always writing, editing, education. My career has sort of woven those three threads.
0: Well, for education, for yourself, did you do any sort of courses or college work for this sort of thing, or is it part of just your career brought you in this direction?
1: I was in academia for a while. I was going for my doctorate, but I ended up with a master's in cultural studies and that point I realized I just did not like academic writing but everything I was learning I loved and I had learned a lot about writing as a journalist and in academia but I really decided to write for kids so when I decided to make the shift I had a lot of experience as a writer and in education but I did need to take courses and I did take quite a bit of courses and I still take courses on how to write for children because it is as we know a really specific craft even if I was writing professionally for 20 years. I needed that education for kids. So I did that through SDBWI, through the Writing Barn, through the Highlights Foundation, classes like that when I was starting out. And like I said, I still love to learn about the craft.
0: Well, And then just to be specific about it, when we say for kids, what age ranges are we speaking about?
1: So my picture books currently, I would say kindergarten through sixth grade. Okay. so some of them are, are skew a little bit younger and some of them skew a little bit older but elementary school
0: so when you decided to make that shift why were you thinking that age group versus either younger or older or was there a thought of it or that kind of how, how it came out
1: yeah the connection really kind of the aha came I had young kids and I was working part-time for a non as a humane educator which is I would go into elementary school classrooms and I would teach the kids about how to help solve problems for people, animals and the planet. So I was doing all these lessons with them about the environment and about social justice and all of this. And I just on my own started going to the library and checking out nonfiction picture book biographies. And I would at the end of our Lessons. I would read them a picture book biography. In humane education, we call it solutionaries. So people who are solving problems, right, for other people, animals, and the planet. So I read them. Picture book biographies about Gandhi and Jane Goodall, and all the wonderful picture book biographies. And I fell in love with these books. It just opened up this genre to me. And that was when I said, Oh, I want to write these. And I call them, you know, in my website and such, Solutionary Stories. So now I write Solutionary Stories for these kids that I used to teach as part of that job.
0: A lot of times, especially writers who start off as educators, the thought sometimes is I saw there was a lack of something, so I wanted to fill. The gap, sort of. Was it, oh, there weren't enough of these? Or was it more just, I love this so much, I want to also write
1: these? Maybe a little bit of both. Because at that point, that was about seven years ago seven or eight years ago was sort of right when this renaissance of picture book biographies was happening so there were wonderful ones by people like carol boston weatherford and lisa Klein ransom i'm just thinking off the top of my head um there's other ones other authors and illustrators who were doing it but it was a pretty small kind of niche when i jumped in since then it's grown a lot but I certainly felt like there need to be more books like this, and I just love them, so I'm going to try no matter what.
0: (laughs) Right. Would you say it's similar to the way in adult fiction, we call it narrative nonfiction? Is it kind of like that, or do you think it's a little bit different than that?
1: definitely think it is. I think most of my books have a narrative thread. I'd say all of them have a narrative thread, some more than others. My book Ocean Soup is a little bit more expository nonfiction, but there's still a narrative thread even through the illustrations. But the rest of my picture books definitely would be called narrative.
0: And that's also, I think, recently there's been a much stronger resurgence for, especially for kids to get more of the nonfiction, I guess the narrative nonfiction style to them. Yes. It seems, yeah. Well,
1: Common Core really helps the nonfiction world because it requires, and state standards now require children to read as much nonfiction as fiction if not more and the internet kind of caused the sort of old encyclopedic picture book biographies to sort of be obsolete because you could get that information on the internet so these creative narrative artistic nonfiction biographies and other picture books started coming because of those factors and now they're just they're pretty huge
0: well that's actually interesting to speak of that because everyone thinks of like, oh, there's no more, you know, Encyclopedia Britannica is not it. You don't buy the set anymore because you buy it all online for kids. So it meant that writers have to now make a more engaging story for them and not just a fact based.
1: Exactly. Well, wow. exactly. I Look. think it ended up being a, a great thing for children's nonfiction because I think what, what, what's coming out today is so much more engaging than what I grew up with
0: yeah it's fantastic you mentioned ocean soup and i know there's another book that just came out also is hollywood cougar or something but it's an actual animal not you know yeah. not the other kind of hollywood <laughs> cougar yeah. yeah but ocean soup is written in, in like a rhyming style
1: yes it is rhyming poetry
0: i once heard a picture book workshop and they were speaking about that a lot of books are moving away from rhyming or i don't know if you're saying moving away or more just that it's not as prevalent as it used to be that like everyone rhymed and now like you gotta know how to rhyme. You gotta be good at it to make it happen. Was any of that a consideration? Did you even think about that or that this is the way the oh, book I... you know was being told?
1: No, I definitely thought about it because I think in a lot of these workshops you hear, don't do rhyme unless you can do it like perfectly, right? right? Like like, bad rhyme is worse, the worst thing. I had this idea and it was actually from one of my humane education lessons about ocean plastic. Kids loved this lesson. They got really engaged and started talking to their families about plastic. And at the time there were no picture books about it. There were some middle grade. So I really wanted to write it. I had this idea that I wanted to write it as a recipe and kind of make it light because it can be a heavy topic when you look at those numbers about five trillion particles of plastic in the ocean and so I was trying to lighten it up and it kept coming to me in rhyme and at the same time I was having that warning like don't do rhyme even though I've always loved poetry but I got very nervous about it so I ended up um doing another doing a course on rhyme for children's books and I went and did the work. I even hired the teacher to look at it and make sure that my meter was correct and my rhyme was correct and I invested in making sure that rhyme was top notch. So I'm really happy with how it turned out. I really love that book.
0: I don't know if you came up with the phrasing ocean soup, but just the sound of it is just so... You want to think of soup as comfort, but when you think of ocean soup, it sounds so yucky.
1: <laughs> yes! So, and that was... I started with that. I really wanted to do this recipe of ocean soup and what made it. For kids thinking about a recipe, how did this happen? How did this get made? Right. And then just to
0: follow up, when you said that you hired a teacher to make sure the meter's correct and the rhyming's correct, is it just so that we're not always rhyming to and you? Or just what kind of are they looking for for that?
1: Well, it's interesting because I I do editing and critiques for authors. And what I often see is people can rhyme, but the meter is way off. Really understanding how meter works and Mm -hmm. how the rhythm works. I knew I wouldn't have a problem rhyming and I love internal rhyme and all of this. But the meter is the thing that stumps many of us, that we really have to put the time and effort in and just pound out the rhythm and the meter of every single line. Because a lot of times we'll be sort of tempted to cheat and sort of put a word in that seems right, but then the meter, the syllable emphasis is wrong, Mm -hmm. things like that. These little subtleties of meters, as I think the biggest challenge of getting a good rhyming poetry
0: yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's sort of also with song lyrics. People think if you could write poetry, you could write song lyrics. But it's also, it's got its own sort of, you have to get the rhythm of song lyrics down. It's like it's a very different yeah. kind of like skill set almost. So when you switched over from to writing for kids, was that an easy process for you? It took longer than you thought it was going to take? Or what was that like?
1: It was pretty easy. I had done a lot of editing of children's books at ah, that point, hmm. and I had children. I was reading all the time. I, I Honestly, as a kid, I would say I wanted to write books for children. Like It was always in there, okay. um, so it was actually pretty smooth. It just clicked, really. It was easier than transitioning to academic writing or journalism. It was definitely the most natural for me.
0: Well, what would you say are some of the biggest I want to say like maybe differences or some of the biggest like mind switches you have to make writing for adults versus kids because the big thing is you don't want to talk down to kids or right? you don't want to dumb it down but kids and adults are still different so is there anything Definitely. like oh yeah I have to learn to write like this yeah
1: yeah there's two main things for me in the transition and one was continually putting myself and for me writing picture books was in the eyes, ears, heart, mind of a second grader. Reading everything through those, really putting my... And I had kids that age at that point. So Mm -hmm. really looking at how they saw the world and making sure that the writing was resonating with them, not with me. And the second thing, as a picture book writer, my biggest learning curve was how to, what we call, make room for the illustrator, which is a, a huge leap from just writing descriptive writing when you're writing a picture book a lot of those descriptive elements you do not include as the author because that's where the illustrator tells their story so I did a lot of work on that
0: (laughs) yeah the first time you ever had to send in a picture book were you like oh god what's this illustration going to be or was it just trust the process trust the process or you know what was yeah yeah
1: I I never have had a, I've never worried about it because I've worked with wonderful publishers and I know they work with wonderful illustrators. So I was, I really wasn't ever worried about it. And, and what happened for me with my first book, which was Meep and the Most Famous Diary, I had a Mm -hmm. sense of sort of the style of illustration that I imagined And when my editor and I first talked, when she acquired the manuscript, she she said what her image was of the style of illustration, and it was exactly aligned with mine. And so at that point, I thought, okay, we're good. And and it really did turn out beautifully. And I didn't have specific pictures in my mind, but I had a a feeling of the illustrations, and it's exactly what we got.
0: Wow. Well, how much say, from from the few books you, you have out now, how much say do they actually give you? when it comes to illustration or style, because you, you don't have contact with the illustrator, right? It's kind of, you know, here it is, find the right person for it. Or, or what is that like?
1: Um, it is a little more interactive. I mean, I, okay. I haven't done fiction picture books, so I can't speak to that, but as a nonfiction picture book author, mm-hmm. um, the way it's worked for me, and I've worked with several publishers now, every time the editor and I have a conversation about the kind of illustrate, illustrations we're imagining the editor sends me several and says, what do you think? You know, what are your top choices or do you have anyone in mind? We sort of have a conversation about it. Every time the six books I have, it's always turned out they pick someone with my input that has been amazing. Amazing. And then throughout the process, I'll see the sketches. They'll send me sketches, character sketches, and then early sketches because with nonfiction there's accuracy questions too so for instance when my editor sent me sketches recently for I have a book coming out in 2021 about Helen Keller the sketches of her as a child didn't show what her eye really looked like so that's where mm-hmm. I, as the nonfiction author, say, oh, we have to make sure that we show this more accurately, things like that. So we do go back and forth. I mean, I can't say I think this should be exactly this, but we're having a conversation throughout, the editor and I, and then the editor is communicating with the illustrator.
0: So you're responsible for a lot of the fact-checking in the illustration
1: Oh, yeah. For nonfiction picture books, the author is expected to do a ton of research, primary research, really know that topic, have all the sources, and then throughout be consulting and making sure that it's accurate. The fact-checking along the way, and for every one of my books, we've had experts who check the accuracy. It's a big deal.
0: (laughs) Yeah, for sure. That's actually interesting, especially because you have experience writing, not just for children. Is your research process different writing for picture book versus when you're writing more adult stuff or is all research the same?
1: That's a good question. It's interesting. I wrote a piece for, I think it was Nonfiction Fest. They asked me to write about research and I titled it, How to Research Like a Scrappy Reporter. And I kind of compared how I used to research for stories. I was a newspaper reporter and I had to write 10 stories a week. And as I was doing interviews or going to the scene of something, I always in my head would pay attention for a thread and sort of follow the research or, or aim my questions along the thread paying attention to make sure I wasn't missing anything but I do the, a very similar process now much less stressful <laughs> yeah to write a children's book I try to like research the topic but When threads pop out to me, I sort of pull them, and I follow them, and I start researching along them, and they'll lead me to the story.
0: So you're not going into the topic with the idea of what you want, so what you're looking for. It's, I know I want to write about this topic, let's see what it has for me.
1: Yeah, I think that's usually how I approach it, yeah.
0: The thread you're looking for, does it usually pop out sooner rather than later, or how long can you go before you're like, come on, you got to find a thread?
1: Well, you know, it's funny because it just depends on the book. Some books, it just seems to pop out. And some of these books that are now published are very similar to my original draft. And other ones are completely different. I mean, it just depends.
0: So the Ocean Soup one, you said that was because that's part of the presentation sort of that you would do as an educator, going into classrooms, but some of your other stories, are these also particular areas of interest to you, or you're just kind of keeping your eyes and ears open for something to hit you? Like, how did you come across those kinds of stories?
1: Yeah, every story has a story. Um, The Meep and the Most Famous Diary, which was my first trade picture book, when I was a newspaper reporter in my 20s, I had met Meep Geese, who's the woman who rescued Anne Frank's diary, and I had done a story about her for the newspaper. She was doing a tour of the U.S., and she was talking to children, and I was so taken by her i always just had this special place in my heart for her and when i started writing for children i thought there has to be a picture book about her and there wasn't so i had to write it so that one had a personal connection winged wonders which is about the people behind who kind of tracked over decades the migration of the monarch butterflies from canada to mexico I always have loved butterflies, but I had taken my kids to the San Diego Science Museum. They have a big domed IMAX theater and they were playing a movie about one of the people behind that discovery, discovery, quote unquote. And I was just so fascinated by the idea that there are these people. And I started getting curious about, well, whose voices have we not heard in this story? And I just got super curious. So those are kind of the ways that I have come to my books. Oh, and Helen Keller, I had spent my senior year of high school reading all of her writings, and I wrote a play about her, and she was one of my inspirations. So that one kind of came back around to wanting to tell a story about Helen that was different than the sort of typical story that people learn in school about her.
0: Well. So, for example, for the butterfly migration, did you travel anywhere for it? Or is most of your research just through articles, documentaries, if there's any books out there?
1: Yeah, I, yeah. I wish that I could go where the monarch's roost. <laughs> yeah. I would love to get there someday. But generally, I don't have the ability to travel to a lot of places. So I travel in my mind and through research and talking to people. I talk to people who had been there and who would tell me about what it sounded like. I ask those kind of questions.
0: Oh, yeah, because you still have to engage you know, engaging the five senses. Yeah,
1: exactly. Exactly. So those are great interview questions. If you're interviewing someone for a story thinking about, oh, what did it sound like? What did it smell like? Those are great questions that give you rich details when you can't be in a place yourself.
0: Right. And then I think this book is out already. It came out in March, right? The moment with the Hollywood cougar with the animal yes, wildlife. Yes, Cougar
1: crossing. Cougar, crossing. cougar Crossing. Yes.
0: I keep calling it I don't yeah that seems to be aligned with your solutionary the humane so is that a story also that you look for or something that had come up and then you're like okay we're gonna make this into a book
1: well that one interestingly came to me years ago a friend of mine the mom of one of my Kids' friends had seen this story about how these people were trying to build a wildlife crossing in LA. And she said, This just seems up your alley. And so I just sort of started following the story. And so the story is about this single cougar who lives in Hollywood in an urban park by himself, isolated. He crossed several freeways to get there. Nobody knows how. And his story was so interesting. But my story about the solutionaries which kind of runs parallel to his story is these scientists who I interviewed and who are featured in the book. And then all the people who came together to save these cougars who were getting stuck in the city to build this wildlife crossing. So it's very much solutionary.
0: Yeah. What does a wildlife crossing look like?
1: Yeah. So what it will be in this case is a bridge that goes over the 101 freeway in LA, a huge bridge that's covered in trees and basically a bridge for wildlife so that they can just naturally get over the freeway to the more open space on the other side of the city i have another book coming out in next year that actually highlights wildlife crossings all around the world which look very different in different places they can be a tunnel or a pipeline or a rope ladder they can be all different things but what they do is It's a human solution when we develop an animal's habitat, any kind of bridge or tunnel that we can build to help them safely get to what they need to survive.
0: So is the ground of the bridge or the concrete, is that covered with dirt and then they plant stuff there or it's, they're just scatter things? Oh, wow.
1: Yeah. So you can see it in the book or look up wildlife crossings and you'll see, I mean, it really is. It's a nature bridge, really.
0: Are people allowed near there or does that chase away the animals if they do that?
1: I think it depends on which one. Some of them right. are big enough that they have kind of a path and other ones, they discourage people.
0: So the animals just see this as just as an extension. sort Well, sort of as an extension of wherever side they're on. That's kind of what it's supposed yes. to feel like to them. Oh,
1: Yes. And the scientists do a lot of stuff around the bridge to sort of guide the animals. They have all these sort of strategies that they use to direct the animals toward the crossings. Oh, which takes time for the animals to sort of build the habits. It's a really fascinating little subfield of science or urban wildlife. It's really amazing how they do it.
0: Yeah, wow. And then just for like a general question, do you set yourself goals of like, I have to have X amount of books per year or like, okay, I'm just gonna wander around until I find a story or no, this is a very disciplined must find stories by this amount of weeks, must have it written by this amount of weeks. Sort of what's your approach from a more, is it like professional career standpoint? I don't know what the right word for that is.
1: Yeah, I don't have that kind of specific goals. Yeah, I just really follow the stories and I try to be writing... This, with the pandemic, everything has changed. But before the pandemic, every week I had certain times that I would just be working on my stories. I have a great agent and I would be communicating with her and I would be, you know, I think I'll have another another one for you around this date. So we have those kind of conversations, but it's pretty loose and it's just really my own time and motivation.
0: You can't really compare it, but theoretically, if you would compare it, would you say writing for kids is, I don't want to use the word harder or easier, but like either more intense, less intense, trickier maybe might be a word to use than writing for adults because of how specific the words have to be or how careful you have to be in the wording in that regard, if that
1: makes (sighs) sense. Yeah. What adjective would I use? Honestly... I think any of us who write in different genres know that it's just different. I love writing in different genres. I mean I'm totally in love with children's nonfiction right now, but I have loved I'm an essayist and I love writing essays. It's just a completely different sort of way of thinking and, and knowing that craft. It's just yeah, putting on a different hat and for me I love being able to do different ones and I don't I don't know if I'd say any it was harder I found academic writing to be the hardest. It just wasn't natural to me, but in terms of creative writing, I I love them all for different reasons.
0: Right. Your main focuses for now are still the nonfiction picture books and then writing the essays. You're not necessarily working on, on adults, like adult books, books. Correct. Or like, I do yeah. some
1: editing of adult nonfiction sometimes, but really the bulk of my life now is writing for children and editing children's nonfiction.
0: Right. And then are you one of those authors who keeps like a notebook that you scribble down the random ideas to go back to, to find your story or not necessarily...
1: Yes, I am. Ah, and they're good. really disorganized. So I'll <laughs> Where did I write that? In which notebook I have to go through? And I'm not very organized about it. But I have a lot of those little scribbled notebooks. Yes.
0: <laughs> Is there a percentage of I probably write down 50 stories ideas and use one or not, not necessarily like that?
1: I think I tend to have a good sense of what's a good idea. I read everything that comes out that I can get my hands on in my genre. And I think having been a newspaper reporter, I have a good sense when I have an idea if it's going to be a story or not. Yeah. And there are certainly ones that I've written and have not sold or that I tried to write and just didn't fly. But it's not a huge number of ideas that I get that I don't pursue that I know is a good idea. I might have a passing idea that, eh, no, that's not.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. So you are reading a lot of nonfiction children's books now.
1: Yes, absolutely. I always have huge stacks on hold at the library. I am always requesting the new ones. I'm reading Publishers Weekly and I'm pulling out the announcements. And when the books come, I request them at the library for them to purchase. And yeah, that's a big part of it, I think. A big part of the job.
0: Have you had yet that you picked up the book and you're like, oh, I was going to write that one. Oh, well.
1: I have been scooped and I have scooped. (laughs) So, yes. <laughs> That's the way it is. It really is. It's just a reality of writing nonfiction. And especially because when you're writing for kids, there's sort of general curriculum guidelines. So we all know kind of what topics kids are studying. So finding our own fresh take around those topics, we're always sort of running to get to it first.
0: Yes. How much of reading other books is just knowing the market, knowing what's out there, make sure you're not writing it versus how did they write it? You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, I think it's both. I mean, I get inspired by other books. I love seeing how they're written. I learn about different imprints, who's publishing what. And I learn about illustrators that I might dream of working with. I think it's all of it.
0: Yeah, I'm sure there's other professions that sort of have like this, but probably one of the coolest thing about being a writer is that reading is part of your research. Like, I have to buy all the books. It's all part of my job. Yeah. <laughs>
1: exactly.
0: Oh, well, very good. We always wrap up with a... Or fill in the blank or complete the sentence sort of with... I love it when writers, illustrators, editors, stories, whatever, do X. And I really don't like it when they do X. So how would you fill in the blank for that?
1: I love it when children's nonfiction picture books inspire kids and pique their curiosity. Yeah, that's good. I don't love it when children's nonfiction picture books talk down to kids or bore them.
0: Bingo. Well, actually, so just a quick follow-up because we always have to ask a follow-up. I don't know if there's a real answer for this, but can you say try to avoid X because that might bore a kid? Or is it just you just got to make sure that you're just writing it well? Or I don't know. Is there anything like that that you could say? Or
1: I think I go back to really putting yourself in the mind of a second grader or talking to kids that you know really thinking what would make their eyes light up what would make them ask you questions when i did all that reading of those stories to the kids as a humane educator i got to see i got to see what they got excited about what they couldn't wait to talk about and they were talking over each other that kind of feeling that we have to find to be a successful book for them
0: yes Okay, one more wrap-up. Language-wise, because also part of not talking down to kids is not just limiting your vocabulary, but are there any sort of sense of, okay, you can use this sort of words, but don't go, We don't have to use these kinds of words. Or is there any sort of sense of that or just...
1: Yeah, that kind I of mean, sense? For, yeah. Trade, for trade nonfiction picture books, they're generally meant to be read-alouds versus okay. if you're writing for the school library market, there's going to be things like reading level and Lexile score and you have to use certain words. There's sort of two different kinds of nonfiction picture books, for the trade books, we have more leeway with bigger words and sort of more sophisticated language because they're being read to. So it needs to be a word in context that they would get. But I I love having a word that might be a new word for them in there. You sort of get a sense of the balance as you go. But I love that about trade nonfiction is that they're meant to be read aloud. They're almost these little performances. So thinking about what a kid hears in the context of a, of a performance, they can handle bigger words than they can if they're sitting there doing an easy reader, you know, trying to sound out each word.
0: Yeah, that's a very good point. All right, very, very good. Okay. Well, Meek, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure to speak with you.
1: Thank you. It's, yeah, this has been wonderful.
0: This was a bonus episode of Oh My Word podcast featuring author, editor, and educator, Meek Pinchas. To find out more about Meek and all the work, please check out the link in the episode notes. To find out more about Oh My Word podcast, and all the great stuff we're up to, please follow us on Instagram at OMYWORK oh Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Check us out at el10bound.com. Music is by Tim Burke. Thanks so much for joining us. Catch you next time.